Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, I'm joined by Megan Rapino, who discusses the She Believes Cup, the upcoming NWSL season, how she and power couple partner Sue Bird discuss vision in basketball and soccer, and how Rapino looks back on taking a knee as an ally in protest with Colin Kaepernick. What Colin was saying, I thought was really powerful and really resonated, and I felt like I felt like it was my responsibility, just as I believe it's everybody's responsibility to do whatever they can in whatever way they can to support. I think it's not a matter of if there is police brutality or if there is discrimination against people of color or if there is systematic white supremacy in this country. It's pretty obvious that there is now more than ever. All that and more coming up. Our guest today is one of the most skilled soccer players in U.S. history. Megan Rapinoe has played in two World Cups and two Olympics, winning one of each, and is a member of the Seattle Reign, which begins its NWSL season on March 24th. Rapinoe's U.S. Women's National Team opens the She Believes Cup against Germany this Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern on ESPN2. Megan, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. It uh, made me blush in my intro there. Always good when I can do that. Uh, lots to talk about here. Uh, I want to start with the She Believes Cup. Uh, you've got games against Germany, France, and England, so that's good competition. Later this year, you'll have the CONCACAF World Cup qualifying tournament. What is the most important thing to you about this She Believes tournament? I think for me and for for the team at, at this point, it's, it's time to kind of start putting it all together. Um, you know, we've gone through... Uh, a period where we've tried out a lot of different players and sort of tinkered with lineups and this and that. And I think it's uh, it's really time for us to start putting things together and start stringing good performances together that we can then start building on, um, you know, heading into the qualifiers, but also kind of with the bigger picture in mind of heading into uh, France 19 and looking to uh, hopefully defend our title. Well, are there any specific things you're wanting to get out of your team in these three games coming up? I mean, I think the performance is... is is big for us. I mean, obviously results are always important. We always want to win every single game. We want to, you know, we play five v five and I'm pissed if I don't win every single game. So, and I think everyone else feels the same way as well. Um, you know, the, this team has a, a history of winning and it's kind of ingrained in us. So obviously the results are important, but for me, it's, it's more about performances. I think we need to start putting really good performances together back to back to back. And obviously, um, you know, these three games against three of the best teams in the world, will be an opportunity for us to do that and start, um, you know, pushing our ourselves forward in terms of our of our tactics and, uh, you know, dominating teams and really uh, kind of solidifying our identity and what we want to be uh, come World Cup 2019. You know, we're used to seeing the U.S. win tournaments. That hasn't happened in the last three tournaments this team has competed in. Obviously, there's a big difference in overall importance between a World Cup and an Olympics and basically other tournaments in the women's game internationally, at least. But how concerning should it be that the U.S. hasn't been winning tournaments lately? I mean, I think while it kind of pisses us off, uh, I, I don't think it's a concern necessarily. I mean, we want, obviously we want to, like I said before, win everything that we play all the time. Um, but we understand that, you know, 
from 2015 and 16, we've had a lot of player player turnover, and part of that, you know, was just players getting older and retiring, and part of that was intentional and in trying to expand the player pool and, uh, you know, give players chances and and you know see players at the top level against the best teams, and that means you know a lot of players playing with people that they haven't played with before or getting first caps or second caps, um, or you know just sort of a lot of inexperienced people on the field. So it's understandable that things aren't gonna gonna mesh. Well, um, I think going forward, um, that's kind of, you know, we've had that part in the back, uh, in our back pocket and sort of in the background. And then now it is more so about um, stringing performances and results together. So, I mean, if we keep losing all these tournaments, yeah, that's concerning. But um, at this point, I don't think that uh, the past three are, are that concerning, but we're definitely look, looking to start you know, more so solidifying who we are, putting performances together, stringing really good performances together and building on that going into qualifiers and heading into the next year. Now, you personally had a good year for the U.S. in 2017, 12 games, three goals, five assists. As you have moved into your 30s, how have you continued to make yourself an important part of the women's national team? And has your game changed at all in recent years? I mean, I think just from a physical perspective, um, you know, obviously coming off the injury in, in 2015 and, you know, not really being myself in 2016, um, I wanted to really get that right. I think, um, you know, for, for the experience that I have or the player that I am, it doesn't really matter if I don't, um, you know, have the vehicle to, to do what I want to do, which is my body. So really taking care of my body and, um, you know, trying to focus on that and get, get my body in the best place that I can. And then I think my game has never really been – predicated on on my physical ability um i'm definitely not the fastest or the strongest or the quickest um but i you know i think that i can you know get into spaces that i sort of create that little extra time and space for myself um i'm much more about you know sort of the player that's just the cog in the team that can kind of help the team move well and play off other players and make sure that i'm getting other players involved and um, sort of being that um, kind of tempo setter and the the kind of connector. So I also have a little bit of experience under my belt. Um, I like to try to draw on that. Um, where the other kids are, are faster and stronger and can probably recover a little bit quicker than I am. Uh, hopefully my, my brain has continued to grow and just kind of using that experience and, um, you know, using my, my sort of general style of play, which, like I said, has never really been about how fast I am or how strong I am to, to try to get into spaces and create and um, sort of be the player that, that I always have been. The basketball star Sue Bird announced last year in a terrific ESPN article by Michelle Vopel that she and you are dating. You guys are obviously one of the great sports power couples anywhere. I'm curious to know if you and she have found any common ground, any similarities in the vision that you use on the soccer field and that she uses on the basketball court. Yeah, I mean, I think if I could, if I could have half the vision that Sue has on the basketball court on the soccer field, I'd be, I'd be, in, I'd be in a pretty good place. Um, our games are kind of similar. I, I think Sue's probably more successful than I am in hers, and probably a better player. Overall, we'll keep that between us. Don't let her know that. But, um, you know, both of us kind of, like I said, aren't, aren't you know, the, the strongest or the fastest or, um, you know, quote unquote, the most athletic. But, um, you know, I think we, we try to find ourselves in good spaces. We're sort of about bringing everybody involved and bringing the team involved. And um, 
sometimes just making the simple pass or just kind of doing what you're supposed to do, keeping the team rhythm clicking over is the most important thing. So I think for both of us, um, we're probably not going to be like the superstar on any team, but we're one of those kind of players that, that hopefully puts all the pieces together and is consistent and creative and, you know, kind of has that, that sort of vision and that kind of connectability on the court and on the field um, that can kind of set us apart. I'm sure you guys don't always talk about sports together, but have you found yourself paying more attention to basketball recently? Yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely the WNBA. Um, I've I've watched NBA for uh, a number of years and was a big basketball fan growing up and played a little bit in, in high school and she played soccer growing up. Uh, but I think we both kind of pay attention a little bit more. Yeah, we're, we're sort of, I mean, we're obviously fans of each other and enjoy watching each other play now, but um, it is kind of interesting to, to get in uh, to the WNBA a little bit more. And I'm a season ticket holder for the Storm now, so I kind of get to see all the teams going through and um, get a little bit of the background gossip, and then that makes the game more entertaining as well. Has she asked you stuff about soccer? and Has she shown that interest as well? Yeah, yeah, definitely. She's a little upset that the that my sport's outside and she has to sit outside instead of sitting in a nice air conditioned or heated heated gym, which is a very a very fair point. But yeah, um, no, she's definitely interested and um, you know understands the game quite well. She probably would have been a really good uh, eight or ten if she would have she would have stayed with it. Nice. Uh, switching gears, the U.S. Soccer presidential election drew a lot of attention. Uh, Carlos Cordero ended up winning. What is your response to what happened during the election and the campaign and what you expect now that Cordero is president? I mean, it's kind of just interesting, um, kind of as a, not really a bystander, but just sort of to, to watch it. I mean, in my career, I have never been through an election. We've always just uh, had one. I'm not even sure there's ever really been anything anything like that before. So you know, just kind of from a surface level, it's just sort of interesting to watch everything happen and, you know, watch candidates uh, talk about what they found important. But um, we're really excited to hold Carlos to all of the, the things that he said during his campaign and looking to, looking forward to working with him. No, I mean, on a serious note, though, I mean, I think, I think that this, you know, for us as a team, this was, you know, a, an opportunity for us to try to kind of push for things that we wanted and to try to get candidates kind of uh, nailed down on those and at least some things that, that we could talk about and, you know, having uh, a relationship with um, the president of U.S. soccer is a, is a really important part of that. So I'm excited uh, for his candidacy and, and the things that he said in there and looking forward to uh, seeing how, how um, he tries to implement that. I mean, there's a real sense that Cordero was selling himself as different to Sunil Gulati, his predecessor in that role. And, and you've had a big role, obviously, in the negotiations for a new collective bargaining agreement. Do you get the sense that Cordero will back up some of the stuff he said about listening more, being more inclusive, involving more people in decision-making? I do, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, he's, he's probably seen a lot of what's happened with Sunil. When things go really well, that's, that's great, but things don't always go really well sometimes. And that means that, you know, if the power isn't sort of decentralized and, you know, certain people are responsible for certain things and all falls on one person's head. And that's not really the best way um, to manage such a robust 
organizations such as U.S. Soccer. So I do get the sense that that's really what he wants and um, what he believes would be uh, the most efficient and productive way to go about running the, the federation and to get people with expertise in certain positions that can run those positions. Um, I think that just in general um, makes sense. And I think I, I said this before when I, I talked to uh, Rich Mahoney with Soccer America is that I think probably in the beginning, the way that Sunil ran the federation and grew the federation probably was what needed to happen in terms of having a visionary and having one person and kind of consolidating that power and having him be able to kind of have his hands on everything. But I think the organization is probably too big for this at that point. Um, and we need to, you know, have experts in all of these different areas that can really bring the most to those areas, whether that's the technical side, the commercial side, the sponsorship side, the youth development side, the foundation, whatever it be. Um, I think that it's, we've probably gotten to a point now that we need more people in positions of power that can really commit all of their bandwidth to doing the best work that they can in that specific area. So I do think Carlos wants that. And I, I do think he feels that that's probably the most efficient uh, way to, to run the business. And I'm, I'm looking forward to how he plans to implement that. That's also another another very difficult part as well. And I don't envy that position for him. Another nugget from that Soccer America article by Ridge Mahoney was kind of underplayed, I thought, because I think you dropped some news in the sense that you said that U.S. soccer had agreed to stage basically all of your games this year on natural grass. Is that correct? And is there a story behind that? I'm not sure there's a story behind that, but I do believe that is correct. I think some of them had been um, slated to be on turf, once again, I think a number of them, um, which was something that was really important to us in our in our CBA. And while we realized we, every single game uh, maybe can't be on grass, or maybe there's some some opportunities, you know, if we can sell out an 80,000-seat stadium on turf, then we're probably willing to do that. But um, I, I think that that was something that we really – fought for and something that we, you know, wanted to get a better relationship in terms of venue selection uh, between the Federation and us. So I think, I think that must've changed at some point. Um, some of the games were, I think at least preliminarily slated to be on turf and, and now they're not. So hooray for us. Yeah, that is good news. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it is, so as far as you understand it, you have been told that they're actually going to pay more attention to that than maybe we saw last year. Yeah, I think I think so. Okay, well, that's very good news. Also, in, there's so much to talk about with you uh, in terms of on the field and off the field. You did something very courageous as an ally supporting Colin Kaepernick and his protest against police treatment of black Americans by taking a knee during the national anthem. There's obviously now a U.S. soccer rule that prevents taking a knee like that. But I'm wondering how you look back on your decision to be an ally in that manner. I look back very positively. Um, I think that if I had to do it all over again, I, I would do the same thing. I think maybe the only thing maybe I'd do different is, is maybe talk to people first about it. But even then, it's like I, I wasn't um, looking for permission or... Um, even really thinking about that, it wasn't about, you know, making a statement or saying this or that. Um, what Colin was saying, I thought was really powerful um, and really resonated. And I felt like 
I, I felt like it was my responsibility, just as I believe it's everybody's responsibility to do whatever they can in whatever way they can to support. I think it's not a matter of if there is police brutality or if there is uh, discrimination against people of color or if there is systematic, you know, white supremacy in this country. It's pretty obvious that there is um, now more than ever. So I think it's everybody's responsibility to do whatever they can in the most impactful way that they can to help this society and help people in this country um, achieve equality and be, be the best person that they can. So I feel good about um, what I did. I, I, you know, wish more people would do it. I wish, um, you know, more action would be taken. I wish we would not have to do it, but uh, we're not at that point. Um, so I think there was a lot of good conversation started about it and that continues to happen. And, um, you know, it, it, it sort of, it sort of sometimes takes those, those kind of measures that maybe are, um, you know, a little bit drastic or a little bit in your face to, to get people's attention. I mean, there's never really been any acceptable form of protest, uh, when it comes to dealing with white supremacy and racism and police brutality in this country, whether you're sitting silently, whether you're sitting at a counter, whether you're going to school, whether you're trying to vote, whether you're doing anything peaceful, violent, or whatever. Um, there's never been anything that everyone, you know, at, at the time that it's done has been like, oh yeah, that's acceptable. So when people say it's an unacceptable form of protest or it's disrespectful or it's this or that, I, I, I just don't agree with that at all. I think um, it is respectful. I think that um, it's also our sort of responsibility and rights um, as American citizens, the way that I believe um, and the way that um, I think that we should act as Americans to stand up and demand what's right and demand what's equal and just for every single person, whether it affects you or not. I remember talking a couple of years ago to the French World Cup winner Lillian Turam here at an event at NYU about racism in soccer and our discussion was obviously centered more on racism and soccer in Europe because that's where he played in his career. But he wondered why it was always black players who the media asked to speak up about it in response. He wondered why more white athletes weren't asked about it. He wondered why more a white athletes didn't take a stand. In your opinion, do not enough white athletes understand what it means to be an ally? Uh, yeah, no, not at all. I think that, the, you know, the number of, of white players that um, just say in the NFL that, you know, voice their, not even knelt, but I would say, you know, voice their opinion or their support of Kaepernick and what was happening was, was not, was not nearly enough. Um, and just in general, I think there's not nearly enough white players that, um, you know, have, have been outward and have, you know, sort of been outspoken in their support. Um, for Colin and, you know, just in general for at least standing up to or at least acknowledging, you know, the inequality and racism that, you know, people of color and that our Afri African-American athletes have to deal with um, on a daily basis. How has that process gone in terms of your social consciousness being increased over the years? I mean, I, th I think it, it definitely has evolved. I mean, I think I have just sort of naturally for whatever reason, I'm, I'm interested in this stuff and feel drawn to it. 
but I think it's kind of like once it's kind of like an onion. Once you peel back one layer and another and another and another and another, it's just uh, that's sort of where I get the feeling that I can't not do anything or I feel responsibility to say something or to stand up because the only way things are going to change is if everybody rallies around and, and sort of deems it unacceptable. So I think it's just kind of a, a matter of time of, you know, peeling the layers back and understanding how everything is connected and, um, you know, understanding how it's not just people of color that it hurts. It's everybody. Um, they're just the group that it hurts obviously very disproportionately, but it really does involve everyone and affect everyone. And, Therefore, everyone has a responsibility to, to try to do something. So, I mean, I, I, we're all in this together. It's like we have, you know, one country and one society, and we, we get to be part of making it whatever we, we want it to be. And hopefully it's a society where everybody's welcome, everyone can thrive, and, and everyone is, is seen equal. And it isn't that way now. So until it's totally perfect, then we still have a lot of work to do. It's sort of a related topic, I guess. I, I know you're connected to Street Soccer USA, and there was discussion during the U.S. Soccer presidential campaign, especially in terms of the men's team, I think, and maybe it was because they were the ones who failed to qualify for the World Cup, and then Jonathan Gonzalez decided to play for Mexico over the U.S. But this applies on the women's side, obviously, too, I would think, in, in the sense of minority communities and what more can be done to reach them in the U.S. in terms of soccer, uh, whether it's Latino communities, African-American communities, or other minority communities? What would you like to see happen? I, mean, I think it's a complicated question just because the structure of soccer in this country uh, is very different from around the world. Um, it's obviously a pay-to-play structure and not getting into whether we should have one or shouldn't have one, but um, it's very expensive. Um, mm -hmm. to play youth soccer in this country, people of color, obviously, uh, you know, disproportionately, um, you know, either in poverty or low income situations in our country. So naturally less people of color, less, you know, Hispanic kids, African-American kids are going to be able to afford, um, you know, the, the type of sort of monthly payments that it, that it takes to play soccer in this country. So I think it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a huge question to answer, but I think it, it does need to, you know, be the focus, not just because, oh, we want to have more diverse national teams or this or that. It's because it's kind of just the right thing to do. If we want to, you know, be all about soccer for everyone and soccer is the world game and um, everyone's welcome, then we need to put our money where our mouth is and really um, let those people know and let those kids know and those communities and those families know that they are welcome and that they're we'll find a way for them to be able to afford whatever it is um, to have their kids involved. And ultimately it should be, you know, sort of a, a meritocracy in sports and, and the best kids get to participate, not just the kids who can afford it. Moving back more toward the field. Uh, I think sometimes we get so focused on the national team that we don't talk much about the NWSL. So I wanted to ask you a couple questions about the NWSL. Uh, the season starts soon, obviously, uh, you're with Seattle. Laura Harvey has been replaced by Vlatko Andonovsky. How is the Seattle team going to be different under him as a coach? You know, it should be it should be interesting. We've obviously had a lot of uh, roster changes throughout the offseason, which uh, I think is a, a good thing. I think the last two years for the club, for the standard that we have for the club, is not nearly good enough. And not making the playoffs 
sucks and we don't really want to do that again. So I think we've really focused on sort of beefing up our roster and uh, putting ourselves in a better position. I mean, Blacko is obviously we know firsthand, very tried and true in this league, has been very successful, um, you know, plays, I think, a, a, a really good style, um, sort of very tactically challenging um, and and demand a lot out of his players. And, the, you know, the players that I trust, the, you know, Becky Sauerbrunn's and Heather O'Reilly's and Lauren Chaney's of the world all speak very highly of him. So I don't know if he'll have, an, have as much banter as, as Laura. I'm not sure anyone has, <laughs> has as much banter as Laura. But uh, I think he'll actually be really good for the team. I think it's interesting because he's actually coming up to extremely disappointing seasons by his standards as well. So I think mm-hmm. both sides are kind of coming re-energized and um, kind of with this sort of cutthroat attitude of – um, you know, being successful and, and really focusing on the journey and every point of the journey is, is very important in order to get to the end point uh, of winning a championship, which is what, what we ultimately want. You know, you get some mixed messages from the NWSL. Obviously, Boston not existing anymore is a really, really difficult blow. But I'm also told by people involved in running the league that expansion is very likely next year with potentially two or even three teams coming into the league, potential the potential of more MLS owners owning NWSL teams. Where are you right now on sort of the state of the NWSL? I feel good about the state of the NWSL. Um, I think that while probably optically having Boston drop out after the draft and the way that it happened was, you know, that obviously doesn't look very good, but if we have a struggling franchise who's just, you know, tooth and nail trying to barely hold on every single year, well, that's not really a sustainable model. So sort of in the long run, I think it's probably, you know, rest in peace, Boston, but it's probably a good thing that we, that we don't have that franchise anymore and make room for another franchise that um, can be much more successful. And that is, is better set up to thrive. Um, I'm very hopeful uh, for, for, expansion in the future and hopefully we'll get some good teams in um in some you know selfishly in some good markets that that are uh, uh fun to be in for the players but not only for them for for us traveling there um hopefully some more on on the west coast uh would be nice but i feel good i mean it seems like the the franchises are stable and growing and obviously it's a a slow growth and sometimes it, it feels like the tiniest of of incremental gains but um you kind of have have to have that and if there's any billionaires out there listening to the podcast who would like who would like to have have a little investment um that would be great i think it's interesting people always talk about like oh what's it going to take for the nwsl to do well and it's like well uh, you know a billion dollars would be nice and money would be nice it's like sometimes people look at women's sports like oh what can we do to grow women's sports and it's like well you need huge investment like Nobody just starts a business with like $100 and then runs it every year on $100 and increases it by like $10 every year. So to say that we like need more marketing or this or that, no, we need like big investment. So anybody who has like extra billions of dollars out there laying around. Hey, forget billionaires. If you're a 100,000 heir and want to advertise on the Planet Football podcast, we would love to have you. But, uh, well, great. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Uh, the she believes cup will take place over three games starting Thursday night, March 1st against Germany from Columbus, Ohio. Megan Rapino, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. 
Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Megan Rapino as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help the cause if you do. And check out the new 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray. That's available for free now on SI.com. Recent guests include Fernando Palomo, Paul Tenorio, Tom Penn, and Jeff Vegas. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.